0: Isaiah chapter 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Acor a place for herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for death, for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. Amen. Be careful what you pray for. It's a strange thing to say, but prayer can be dangerous. What if we pray for clarity? And the result is far from what we wanted? What if we pray for God to open or close doors, and when He does, we're afraid or disappointed? What if we pray for wisdom, and the wise thing to do goes against every instinct we have? There's also the issue of follow on consequences. If our prayer is answered, what else changes? What happens next? What are you praying for? And what will really happen if God answers? Israel, through Isaiah, has prayed for God to come down. He feels far off, and the difficulty of their circumstances makes him feel distant. God, Isaiah prayed, show yourself. He's right about what's needed. One teacher says the prayer of the last chapter ended with the Lord's people waiting and longing for the remedial work of God. The ruins in which they find themselves living are the fruit of their own failure, and only the coming of the conqueror can redeem them. Several commentaries then suggest that chapters 65 and 66 are God's answer to Isaiah's prayer in chapter 64. He prayed for revival. He prayed that God would not long hold himself back, that God would not keep silent. So God responds. Verse 1, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am. Here I am. God's people asked, where are you? And God said, I'm here. I've been here. I've been calling out to the world all along. God was always available to them. They only didn't expect it because he's not the kind of God they imagined him to be. People inevitably expect God to be a lot like us, don't we? We expect him to be punitive, reacting out of feelings of rejection and hurt. We were mean to him, so he'll be mean to us. That's what we would do. We expect him to be annoyed or exhausted by our neediness. People who always need more forgiveness, always need a second chance. We're always creating extra work for him on account of our sin. And we expect that eventually he'll get tired of it. He'll give up and he'll push us away. Isn't that what we'd want to do? But God here says that he's not like us. When we weren't even looking for God, before we acknowledged our need, God came down looking for us, crying out, here I am. He bursts on the scene in grace to show us the depth of our need while showing us the greatness of our Savior. He shows us the the power and the necessity of the Savior while he also softens our rebellious hearts toward that savior. The words humble and humiliation come from the same root. That's why we talk about God humiliating himself in the incarnation. God, who does not have a body or limits, takes on human flesh with all of its limitations and weaknesses Jesus, in his humanity, humiliates himself. He's born of a woman. He gets hungry. He wears diapers. He submits to the authority of parents. He learns and grows, and he takes the form of a servant. God is willing to humble himself for our salvation. And so here, God describes himself in almost humiliating terms. It's like that kid at recess, jumping up and down, wanting the big kids to pick him for the team. Pick me, pick me. And God can speak that way because God is secure in who he is. Humbling himself is no threat to God's identity. And so any attention-grabbing intervention any humiliating incarnation that is necessary to save us, God says he will do. There was another way to get to God. He made that clear in the garden. He made it clear on Sinai, but, but Israel wouldn't take that way. They wouldn't ascend to God through genuine holiness and worship and walking with him in their lives. They went their own way. And then when they did, they complained that God felt far from them. And then there were people like Isaiah who were seeking God, but who felt the missing presence of God in their lives. The presence of God is the answer to the problem. So Isaiah prays. But be careful what you pray for. Because the presence of God is not without consequences. That God's presence felt absence, absent, that wasn't for nothing either. It was because of sin. The people didn't want to follow God. They wanted to go their own way. We've been reading chapter after chapter, and yes, they were religious. God will get to that in a moment, but it wasn't true religion. They were looking to find an experience of God on their own terms. They were going to find the God they wanted through the means they wanted because that gave them the reassurance of being in control. Daphne and I were talking yesterday about a time when Nathan was little, was really little. And he had disobeyed some instructions that he'd been given. And I sat down and asked him why. Why? Kids can be remarkably honest when they want to be. And I said, why did you do that when I told you to do something else? And he said, Dad, I didn't want to listen to you. I wanted the something else. When God comes down, the first thing we have to do is see and admit what the real issue is. Jake and I were talking about it in the car this weekend. How easy it is to deceive ourselves into thinking that what we need is just a little bit of help. And what we really need is a massive intervention from God. It's like when we're coming down with something, you first get those red eyes and the sniffles, and we try to fool even ourselves oh, it's just allergies, it's just a head cold. And then we're laid up in the bed for three days with real sickness. In the presence of God, we can't pretend we're just a little out of sorts. That's not what the gospel's for. Another teacher said it well the gospel is for souls in need of massive intervention. And the admission of that need is what was missing for so many in Israel. And it's a shame. They had. All the advantages. They had a history with God. They had revelation from God. To them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. They squandered all those advantages. They replaced God's law with their own desires and opinions. You can't walk with God. And follow your own path. If you love me, keep my commandments. Christianity isn't a be righteous to get in the door religion. Thank God it's by faith. Grace. But the heart of Christianity, once we're in the door, is walking with God. And he walks in righteousness. I liked this, I read. Authentic faith in Christ proves itself with openness to his word and delight in his pleasures. That was an unpleasant mental exercise for me yesterday, was thinking through my week in terms of openness to his word and delight in his pleasures. Many in Israel had redefined delight pleasure, good, and righteousness, and they'd redefined them around their own opinions and desires. And here in this chapter, God gives examples of that disobedience, but I think he does this very intentionally with with contrast that we're supposed to see between what they're doing and the commandments he had given. Commandments one through four are in a way presented in order in this text. The first commandment, remember, was have no other gods before me. The Hebrew is before my face. In verse 3, he says what? They provoke me to my face. They provoke before me. They have others before me. The next part about sacrificing in gardens and on brick, this is likely a reference to honoring Baal instead of Yahweh. Instead of keeping the first commandment, they were doing with their hands the fruit of what was in their hearts. And that sin isn't very unfamiliar to us. Question, what is idolatry? Answer, idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. I actually like the Heidelberg's answer to the question right before that, what does the Lord require in the first commandment? It's a long answer, but it ends with this. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than doing the least thing against his will. Yeah. The second commandment deals with forms of worship. And the offense here is the making offerings on bricks at the end of verse 3. God commanded that altars were to be built with uncut stone, not bricks. And if that seems like a trivial disobedience to you, remember that all disobedience starts small. All disobedience starts in the heart. Another pastor said disobedience begins small at the point where obedience would be easy, but we decide it's not important. The third commandment is about allegiance to the Lord's name. But in verse 4, the people who call on the name of Yahweh in worship are calling on the name of the dead for help with their lives. Seeking answers among the graves, calling out to whomever will listen or offer spiritual guidance. It's good luck charms, it's horoscopes, and it's all irreconcilable with honoring the name of Yahweh, which God's people are supposed to bear. The fourth commandment is ostensibly about Sabbath keeping, and it is, but it also speaks to the distinction between the holy and the ordinary In verses 4 and 5, God says that Israel has developed their own notions of holiness. No regard for what the Lord has set aside or what the Lord has forbidden. They will call unclean what is unclean in their eyes and they will call holy what is holy in their eyes. And so they do all this. They break the commandments one after another, after another, after another. They walk their own way rather with walking with God. And then they feel like God is far from them. And in a way he was. And for good reason. He'd given instructions on how to enjoy closeness with God. But these people walked their own way. And so now, when God, responding to Isaiah's prayer, does come down to them, it wasn't exactly going to turn out how they wanted. And notice that Israel's turning away from God wasn't about turning away from religion. Those are two different things. They did all sorts of religious practices, just not the ones God said would lead them to him. They liked to say that they wanted God. And so they did all of this religious supernatural stuff that other people could perceive as religious. But they didn't want to do the things God himself said would draw them close to him. I wonder if that's because they really, no matter what they said, didn't want to find God. Maybe deep down, they thought it was safer to keep God at a distance. After all, God might intervene with what we're doing. He might call us to do something else. He might have plans that are other than what we've designed. Paul picked up this thread in Romans, lamenting how Few Jews received Christ as the Messiah. While the gospel was bearing great fruit among the Gentiles, it seemed like it should have been even easier to all the people who had the religious privileges from God for thousands of years. But another teacher observed that what God found is that Israel's problem was not a lack of information or preparation. Their problem is what's summed up in verse 2. I spread out my hands all the day, To a rebellious people. John wrote, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Why? Why won't they receive him? Rebellious hearts. We say we want God to come down. We say we want God to feel close and to get involved with our lives. But we are also deathly afraid that when he does, he will interfere with what we want. And the result is the contrast in this passage. One teacher says, we'll climb any mountain except God's holy mountain. We'll do all kinds of work. We will go through all sorts of machinations. We will exhaust ourselves to do everything except come to the holy mountain of God to rest in what he will do. And it's because it's hard for us to surrender to To his will, we're afraid that if we yield to God, He will ruin everything. And when God does come down, He finds that sin. He finds that love for sin. And in many, He finds unrepentance towards sin. And since the wages of sin is death. This passage in Isaiah has a lot of talk about hell. Hell is the result of God showing himself to sinful, unrepentant people who seek after everything except God. Verse 6, Behold, it's written before me, I'll not keep silent, but I'll repay. I'll indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together. And yet, amazingly, this offended God, and rightly so, doesn't respond with indiscriminate wrath. He lays out in the answer to this prayer two options, two contrasting destinies. And it doesn't break down the way Israel thought it would along citizenship lines, Israel or not. No, one scholar observes that what distinguishes the true church of God is not the division between Jew and Gentile, but between those who seek God and those who forsake God. Are you a seeker or a forsaker? God describes the contrasting mountains in verses 7 and 11. One mountain is his, a holy mountain where he built his house and dwells with his people. The other is the mountain of the idolaters where the false gods are worshipped. And the, the distinction that matters is not Jew or Gentile. It's not which mountain is geographically closest to you. The distinction that matters is which mountain you will call home. Which mountain is your home? The wicked have a mountain. They refuse to seek God. He says, I was ready to be sought when I called you, when I spoke to you. God says, here I am. Here I am. Pick me. The creation cries out to the glory of God. The wicked would not be found. They would not hear. They would not listen. Judgment does not come because God is unmerciful. It comes because so many are willing to reject that mercy in pursuit of their own ends. It's a refusal of God's grace. And so in the end, God leaves them to what they love even though it's those loves that will destroy them. Verses 13 to 16 describe their destiny in direct contrast to the fate of the redeemed. The faithful of God will eat, drink, rejoice, and sing, but those who do not believe will be hungry, thirsty, cry out for pain of heart, and wail for breaking of spirit. It's not a literal description of heaven and hell. It's showing you the polar opposites Of the eternities at hand. We need to know in terms that we can understand. The consequences of hiding from the mercy of God when it seeks us. And we need to know. To lay hold of and to be encouraged by. The fate of those who respond to his mercy and turn to God for forgiveness of sin. It's represented in, it's not fully contained within them, but it's represented within these descriptions of physical happiness. The greatest life you can imagine, it's like that. It's way better. It's different, but it's like that. That's what Isaiah is saying. One of the reformers said, heavenly contentment lies not in the abundance of earthly enjoyments, but in a calm peace of mind and spiritual joy. From the persuasion that the fatherly love of God is more delightful than anything earth has to offer. To believe that. We must receive the gift of God, which is faith. To believe that the fatherly love of God is more delightful than anything earth has to offer, requires a work of the Spirit that has given us ears to hear so that when that general call of repentance God sends out into the world, the specific effectual call turns our hearts toward him. Like it or not, that God must do this work and does it in the hearts of the elect is all over this passage he returns to the horrific winepress metaphor of the last chapter where he, Isaiah discussed in, in disgusting detail the way God's judgment would crush human bodies. And God goes back to that here, but he adds an additional piece of information. Because while every grape deserves the crushing punishment. Not all of them will receive it. Some are selected out, and they produce the new wine of verse 8. New wine is the good stuff, the kind that's prized by the winemaker, just as God has prized some for his own glory. I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos on butcher's I don't know if that represents some deeper problem I'm having, but it is, it's interesting to watch all the butchers hold back a cut for themselves. Maybe not the most expensive because they want to make money, but kind of the best bang for the buck cut. It's literally called the butcher's cut, and they hold it back for themselves. They don't sell it. They prize it. A winemaker has this new wine That they hold back, they they hold it for themselves. And so God has a people that He prizes for Himself, that He plucks out from the rotten bunch around them and has a higher purpose for them. The remnant of Israel is there, the elect Gentiles of every nation. Are there, and they will, by God's grace, turn to him in faith and be rescued from the winepress of destruction. They will receive, he says, a new heavens and a new earth that God will bring, a permanent home for the people of God, where, verse 18, they rejoice forever. Verse 19, there's no weeping or distress. Verse 25, there is no violence. And verse 20, there is no death. And the reason why God uses our lives here to teach us to walk closely with him is because that's what eternity will be, is a walk with him. The reason why he uses this life to gather and perfect the saints is that our eternity with him will be just that. A walk with God in perfections. Good descriptions of hell and heaven are this. Hell is simply eternal souls who do not want God getting their way. And heaven is eternal souls who long for God getting all they want. Consider the starkness of the contrast between realities. In prayer, God's people had asked if he would be angry with them forever. And looking at their circumstances, they could see nothing good coming their way. But God responds to their prayer. He does come down. And oh, what a difference it makes. Be careful what you pray for. But you know, that cuts another way as well. I just think we don't pray for enough. I found a lot to think about in this quote. God often answers our prayers in a way that shames us for our unbelief. The Bible does not present an art of prayer. Read the whole book. You won't find it. Do you know what you do find in the Bible? The God of prayer. The God of prayer who calls before we answer and answers before we call. It's true, be careful what you pray for, but not in a bad way, (laughs) because what God will do is so much bigger and better than what we expect, and we will be ashamed of the things we prayed for compared to what he brings. We should pray as Isaiah did. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's a pretty big prayer. (laughs) And we pray that knowing that he has come down to us in Christ. We should pray big prayers, knowing that by faith God will supply all our needs. We should pray big prayers. Knowing that the presence of God in our lives will mean laying down our desires in honor of his. Knowing that the presence of God in our lives means that we won't get what we want sometimes. And sometimes we will. But we won't get anything good until what we want most is him. That's the step by which he can change and refine and meet all our other wants as necessary. We just have to trust him enough to want him to do it. Isaiah had the courage to pray what he prayed because he delights in the knowledge that God delights in doing what is good for his people. He prizes you, Christian. He prizes you for his own glory. He shows himself here to be a passionate seeker of your attention and your hearts. Here I am. Here I am. Consider that love toward us. Walk in faith with a God who loves you that much. Learn what he hates and hate it. Learn what he loves and love it. But pray above all that he would come down, that he would intervene in your life, that he would make of it what he wills. Come, Lord Jesus.